Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 1130 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We appreciate you taking the time out to join us, and we thank you. Uh, and, bes- and just remember, if you have questions or comments, the lines are always open. It's 516-387-1944. Well, she is back. Uh, the Warrior Princess. The person that has the 411 on all things immigration, Attorney Nadine Brown. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Yeah. How are your holidays? They were pretty quiet and uneventful, I should say, and I'm pleased. Um, so we're oh, okay. all in good health and blessed and highly favored. Amen to that. Wonderful to hear. All right, I am not going to delay. Um, we might have one other person on with us, but I will let you know. But in the meantime, catch us up and, and inform us on the all things immigration, especially please explain Title 42. So all things immigration in the news recently is our uh, President Biden uh, went to uh, tour El Paso and see kind of what's um, happening at the border uh, because the news has reported a lot of, you know, tent cities and uh, immigrants that are on the streets um, just camping out, waiting. Uh, there's also been some new implementation of rules and policies as it relates to Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans coming in, and that's in, in an effort to kind of stymie the, the flood of, of immigrants um, coming through El Paso and other areas um, in our southern borders. Um, and I can get to Title 42 in a minute. But the, the newest thing that I've been uh, made aware of and people have been inquiring about is the parole program uh, that was announced uh, last Thursday and Friday uh, that has gone into effect, and that's to limit and try to get people in a more orderly fashion who have family members already in the U.S. who are from Cuba, from Haiti, or from Nicaragua, because those seem to be the highest number of individuals coming through. But there are others, uh, still Venezuelans, Colombians, Mexicans, um, people from Honduras, um, fleeing different uh, personal issues, you know, um, natural disasters, gang violence, um, so with the the Cuban and, and Haitian Nicaraguan parole program, it's individuals who have family members who are already living in the United States, either permanent residents, primarily U.S. citizens, 
uh, who want to come need to kind of apply online, and their U.S. citizen or permanent resident sponsors need to demonstrate that they have the financial ability to support these individuals who want to come. Um, because a lot of the criticism and the immigration pushback has been, um, you know, the rhetoric that immigrants are coming to take our jobs and our services and our benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And that is entirely not the case because anybody who lives in the U.S. knows that you either need to have your own, um, you know, pay, as, pay your way, pay as you go, uh, health insurance program or through your employer. Um, and for public benefits, there are regulations and rules as to who qualify. So the parole program is asking nationals of those particular countries who can demonstrate that they're nationals. Um, so you must have your birth certificate or, you know, a, a valid passport, not an expired passport, not any kind of expired documentation, and duly translated birth certificates um, to upload to their portals um, and have your sponsor demonstrate that they have the financial um, integrity to support, you know, a relative that's coming. So tax returns um, need to be filed uh, and recorded with IRS, uh, your W-2s or 1099s, income statements, your pay stubs, um, bank statements in some uh, instances. Uh, and so it's supposed to uh, integrate or streamline a more orderly process for individuals who are presenting at the border hoping that they can come in and either apply for asylum or evade Customs and Border Protection and Immigration Customs Enforcement officers or somehow getting the system and apply for asylum. Um, so that's the, the newest thing that I've been getting calls about, um, people not understanding that it is a paper-intensive process because one of the, the key details that some people overlook is that extreme vetting uh, that must take place, security background checks, uh, which includes biometrics, uh, electronic digital uploads of fingerprints to the FBI and CIA database to make sure that individuals coming in are not known or wanted criminals or um, criminals, uh, you know, who may try to evade the process uh, and seek asylum that way. Uh, so the parole program is the most important detail that is coming, the, you know, trying to stem the tide of the asylees um, coming into the U.S. And then if you'd like for me to go into Title 42, I can, um, you know, about what that is and, and why it's important and the back and forth with the courts, uh, which is just a natural part of the policymaking um, and legal process. Yes, if you would, because, you know, we, you, you know how you hear just phrases tossed around and you kind of just go with it because, you, you know, you don't want to some, – sometimes you just don't want to appear ignorant, number one. But number two, you just don't necessarily have the right uh, people Understanding or, or, or time to explain it. Right, yeah. So, you know, deep diving into law is, is, is one of those things that is time-consuming. Um, so Title 42 is Code of Federal Regulations, and it's a, a broad – uh, rule of law that has different sections and parts to it. Most, most uh, you know, legal doctrine, um, you know, law does. So whether it's, you know, starting at the statute and the state level, but we're talking about a federal um, rule that determines in this particular uh, subsection about the health and safety and, and public uh, administration uh, 
kind of policies that are implemented and when they can be implemented. And so what happened when, you know, COVID was determined to be a public health crisis um, and a global pandemic, um, the Trump administration implemented uh, this, you know, detail uh, in the public administration, public health and welfare um, uh, part of the law to detain, expulse, um, you know, re- remove immigrants based on a public health crisis that we were having at the time and that we can implement at any time. Um, you know, people need to understand that government does have certain authorities and limitations, um, but that they can implement rules when necessary for the public good, for public welfare. Um, We've seen it throughout the history of this nation. And so what happened with the global pandemic implementing uh, Title 42 was applying it to the southern borders to say all those people that are coming in, if they're caught by Customs and Border Protection um, or Immigration Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, that they will be returned because they pose a public health risk, which, you know, nobody's screening them at the borders um, for COVID or for any other um, communicable disease that they may bring in. Uh, so, or they don't have the capacity and infrastructure to do that. Um, they may get into a detention facility, but still health care and, and even basic hygiene services um, may be limited just because of the volume and the resources that are available. Uh, so, Title 42 says that in in a nutshell and in summary fashion that the government, the federal government can implement certain rules to limit uh, individuals coming in when there is a public health crisis that is posed. They can't really go through each and every individual and you don't know who's a carrier, who's not a carrier. Um, And what we've learned over the course of the last few years as, you know, science is about trial and error, and and once new information becomes known, uh, what we do with it, uh, that, you know, COVID is one of those things, it's it's a microscopic virus that uh, is carried from individual to individual, and it's also mutating as everything does evolve over time to evade your immune system. Um, So, you know, rhetoric aside, Title 42 is a law that's there on the books until Congress, you know, changes or tweaks uh, with amendments um, that allow the federal government to limit and to do certain things to limit the influx of individuals coming into the United States, and the COVID pandemic was one of them. What has happened is that the Biden administration has continued um, to use that and then also tried to stop using that and, and try to revert back to the normal processes of allowing individuals in, and then there was this tremendous tr- pushback from about 19 um, states, um, kind of promoted by a lot of the Republican uh, state attorney generals um, to sue him to say, to sue the Biden administration to say, no, we want to maintain and keep Title 42 in place, even though much of society and, and many places have reverted back to pre-pandemic, um, uh, you know, policies and, and, and business as usual. So that's what's going on with Title 42. It's just for public administration, public health, awareness, public crisis, and communicable diseases, um, how we can implement our rules and kind of um, engage certain policies to to limit um, the spread of disease and also to limit the influx of immigrants. All right. 
So I guess my first question is the visit from President Biden to the border. Who did it help? Who did it hurt? Did it draw the right attention to the issue? Um, How did did it benefit the work that you do in any way, shape, or form? I think, you know, visits um, to, to places so you can kind of see, um, you know, what's happening on the front lines is important so that they can get perspective. Our policymakers and leaders need to have a good understanding of what's actually going on. If you're very remote or you're just making policy decisions from the, you know, the comfort of your office or your armchair, then you can sometimes be detached and, and have policy. So I think the the benefit of him going to see what was actually happening or kind of get a, an optic of to, you know, the lay of the land is important so that he can then advocate for his um, administration's position on certain um, uh, rules and regulations um, as far as immigration policy at the southern border. He's always going to have criticism. Um, any president does. Um, there will be people who like you and don't like you for various reasons, their own uh, personal uh, opinions or the impact that the rules that you make have. So I don't know necessarily who it benefited and who it did not benefit. I know that from a policy and public administration perspective, it would be that he got a better idea and understanding of what El Paso looks like or what the migrant camps look like and what some of the non-governmental organizations are trying to achieve with some of the homeless immigrants that are there, um, why are some of them, you know, congregating in El Paso and not leaving, even though they have the freedom of movement, they do and they don't. And people need to understand why that is. And it's because our laws also, um, which he is a chief law enforcement officer, uh, you know, he's um, he's sworn to uphold those rules, which is to make sure that, you know, our borders are secure and that uh, within, you know, a 100-mile radius that people can be stopped and asked for their documentation. So people need to keep that in, in their minds, and that's why some of the immigrants won't leave um, and are camped out in different areas of El Paso. Um, but, you know, who has it helped, who hasn't it helped, um, that remains to be seen because we're still writing policy, we're still implementing programs, people are still being deported, they're implementing the new parole program to help uh, limit and reduce the number of individuals coming in. Um, but I think it was maybe a, a, a good effort to at least go and see, even though they may have sanitized a lot of it for security reasons, clearly, but it's it's important that he at least went there and that people know that he's aware of the circumstance. He's not, like, so far removed that he's not um, cognizant of, of what's happening and what he's trying to do from a bureaucratic and policy perspective um, with uh, Secretary Mayorkas from Department of Homeland Security. We are talking... Title 42 and, and other immigration and border-related issues with Attorney Nadine Brown. If you have questions for Esquire Brown, the number is 516-387-1944. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. 
we let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. This is Douglas Dobbs of Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community for 29 years with quality funeral and cremation services. Honoring all religions and faiths, we have been here for many grieving families. Whether it's a complete funeral service with a burial or a simple dignified cremation, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here for you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs dedicated to serving our families. Good morning and welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We are speaking with immigration attorney Nadine Brown. And if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. And so, Nadine, I want to know from your perspective, when you see the reports on the television or you hear them on the radio or you see them online uh, with regards to these issues, what do you say to yourself in terms of I wish they, meaning public officials, would do this or I wish they would not do that? Um, And also after that, I wish the media would do or not do what? Well, I, I think the media is doing an okay job, but I wish they would not sensationalize, um, I guess, the you know the abject poverty and some of the negativity, because there are some great non-governmental organizations that are trying to help some of the immigrants that are there. Um, so it, I guess it just depends on the lens with which you view the news. Um, you know, your perspective, are you seeing everything as, you know, disastrous and um, there's some terrible things that are happening? Yes, that is true, but there's also some good things and some, you know, human stories that are behind each of those families that are there, um, some of the pregnant women that are coming, um, the things that have happened. And it's just to give, like, an, a realistic, uh, pragmatic perspective um, what I wish the news media would do is is to hold accountable some of the people that are in our Congress that are criticizing and, you know, pushing border security, which is extremely important, but we're having a humanitarian crisis and you can't always um, view it in the lens of security, security, security. Um, do you need to screen people to come in to make sure that they're not terrorists? That's true, um, but we have a lot more domestic terrorism and, and you know, gun violence um, as priority about personal safety for a lot of people in society more than southern border issues and people coming in uh, from abroad. So I think it's to hold the news media accountable um, to making sure that our leaders, our representatives, and the people who are shaping the policy and could shape policy, um, that they have a better understanding. What are they going to do about the problem? Because at the end of the day, we can highlight you know, individual stories, but if it never gets to Congress in D.C. or to the state legislatures, uh, they have no clue, and they're just you know, still making regulation and policies that affect the people that are in El Paso, um, you know, the, the people that are in the detention facilities, 
Um, and so they, they need to be aware, both our leaders and the news media, that the individual stories are important, the tragedy, the loss, um, those are important, but it's okay, so what now should you do, what could you do, um, you know, what resources are available to our leaders, whether it's Department of Homeland Security policies, which sometimes their hands are tied because it's the Office of Management and Bu Budget um, that kind of dictates certain things, having to go through the legislative process, what that involves, um, and, you know, what could the media do a little bit different is to highlight some of the organizations that are available for people who are coming in or trying to come in, um, either to supply them with uh, food, you know, shelter, clothing, or, you know, urgent or acute medical care. Um, that I would like to see a little bit. What are our churches doing to facilitate or to assist that are in some of those border towns? Um, I know that a lot of um, attention has been given to, you know, some of the Catholic dioceses in El Paso, and that's important and that's good, and how we can support through non-government organizations people who are coming here and why they're coming here. And if we have a better understanding um, of that aspect, then, you know, the community service organizations, that would be helpful, I believe. How did... Um it, it, you know, because I'm still thinking that there's still some complications, but how did COVID really um, impact what you do? And has that been, let's say, corrected a bit since, it, you know, things have changed a little bit? Well, COVID has impacted um, a lot of immigration and, you know, how we do law by uh, allowing us to kind of streamline um, application processes. Um, Im with immigration in particular, it's always been kind of decentralized. You have these service centers that are regional um, throughout the country of the California Service Center that, you know, serves the western area. You have the Vermont Service Center that's in the, the northeast. You have um, kind of the uh, Nebraska Service Center. You have, you know, Texas Service Center. And then you have, like, the um, National Benefit Center, which is out of Missouri, which is kind of like the central um, area from, you know, Chicago and um, the Kansas all the way to Florida. So it's always been kind of decentralized in that way, using P.O. boxes um, with, uh, you know, interviews in person. Some have been waived by a metric appointment. Some have been waived because the federal buildings, um, every now and again, you will have an individual uh, who, you know, um, is suspected COVID or has had COVID or, or whatever, and they have to close the building. Um, but they also close buildings for uh, inclement weather and for, you know, local protests on the ground or for, you know, some kind of natural disaster. So those are things that are constantly ongoing. But I think COVID has kind of put in perspective um, disaster preparedness and what uh, some of the government buildings need to do. And so people need to understand that sometimes we have to amend or abridge or adjust how we conduct business logistically with a workflow interruptions delaying a lot of the interview appointments or limiting who can uh, enter buildings, whether you're masked or not masked, um, whether or not counselor can accompany you, because one of the biggest changes that we had where we were doing a lot of telephonic appearances uh, for individuals who had to appear um, you know, at an immigration interview, whether it's at, you know, Corporate Center Boulevard here in Orlando for the Orlando field office and you need to have an interview but you'd like to have counsel represent you, they were limiting the number of individuals inside the buildings. They they do that on a regular basis, but 
um, you know, counsel has the right to appear. And so they would ask us to, you know, appear telephonically, which is good, um, and sometimes not so good depending on the type of case that you have. Uh, with the immigration court also streamlining to teleconferencing and, and video conferencing, um, which they've always had for detained individuals who were facing, you know, criminal um, matters in addition to um, regular immigration civil violations, but also allowing us to appear, us meaning um, the bar to appear via video conferencing using, you know, Cisco WebEx, um, for example. And it, it varies from judge to judge, but across jurisdictions, it has been where we've been allowed to work remotely, and that's kind of facilitated both not having to um, travel so far and just the the efficiency of uh, pushing cases through. Um, the electronic system that has been implemented with the filing of documents as well has been helpful. So instead of still having to do hard copy, you know, pen and paper, um, which a lot of us still do. If you're old school, then you always have a backup because, you know, technology is what it is, but, you know, things mm -hmm. get corrupted or lost or hacked, and so you need to have a backup paper copy. Um, but COVID has kind of helped and and hurt in some respects, but I think his my, primarily helped us um, retool and recalculate how we do business, and a lot of it is, is can we be more efficient using technology uh, and still work remotely and get accomplished um, the things that we need to do for our clients um, and for the, the general um, you know, public when it comes to immigration specifically, but also in other areas of law as well. We have the Florida Access um, Court System for others who are doing you know, civil or criminal litigation. Still, I think criminal court requires some you know, in-person hearings and for trials and whatnot. The judiciary is trying to kind of um, make some adjustments that will help um, the public access um, the courts in a more efficient um, and diligent manner. So I was going to ask you, you know, what types of in-person things, uh, you know, I'm sure that the, the process has been streamlined a lot because of, you know, being able to do stuff from home or online or whatever, but what types of things do you think that get missed by not doing the in-person uh, uh, work? Um, I think when there is suspected um, fraud or trying to determine the credibility of a witness, sometimes um, if it's, you know, not video, you kind of lose um, the perception of body language, which also reveals a lot, um, intonation sometimes, um, you know, some people are not very technologically savvy, so that puts them at a disadvantage. Um, so mm -hmm. in those instances, especially for a, a more mature or senior individual, it can be challenging. Or if you don't have um, the means to have great technology on your phone or your laptop or a tablet, um, then it puts you to disadvantage. But I think um, overall it's, it's been positive, um, but the negatives would be where you're trying to determine credibility of a witness then mm -hmm. you may lose um, something in the translation. But overall, I think it's it's good. And, and most people are, are honest people of integrity and have credibility. Some are not so much. Um, but we just have to be mindful of what tools we have to ferret out, you know, somebody's um, honest statement and honest perspective and perception of, you know, what has happened and, and what benefit they're applying for. Inflation has kind of hit. A lot, well, just about every aspect of life. Have there been fee increases or any type of cost increases 
that have really uh, impacted a lot of the applicants that you deal with? So not yet. However, it's coming down the pike. So there has been um, an, a rule regulation that is proposed. It's in the comment period now, between now and I think the end of March. Uh, they're proposing fee increases across USCIS uh, benefits application, but primarily will focus on the business side of companies that are trying to recruit and hire uh, foreign workers, a lot of our tech companies, but also other areas, um, you know, may see the effect in, you know, premium processing. Uh, when I initially started, it was maybe $1,000. Now it's $2,500, and it's, and it's looking to increase. Other types of, you know, H-1B, you know, H-2A visas, um, only because, uh, you know, the still higher American um, you know, buy American uh, policies is still in effect, and we're trying to increase, um, you know, our our marketing and and our workforce and our manufacturing. Um, but outside of that, it's there's rules that they're trying to implement. We're waiting uh, to see what the comments are and then what the the final rule implementation will be. But yes, it's coming down the line. But for now, everything is still at a reasonable and has been at a reasonable level during the, the Trump administration from 2016 to 2020, um, there was a proposed fee hike as well, but it was stayed by um, the court process uh, that we have in place to kind of um, do a check and balance on why we're trying to implement the fees because immigration is primarily fee-driven. Um, we may have you know, some things from, from Congress uh, when it comes to you know border security, but when it comes to uh, the implementation of visas and and uh, green cards and and citizenship, that's all fee generated. So if we don't have enough fees, then there's going to be kind of an interruption in those services. And so they're trying to implement um, an increase somewhere from you know you know five percent to twenty percent in some areas, and it's it's not uniform across each. Um, area of, of immigration law from business to family, but there's an, an implementation of an increase coming. Okay. We are here with immigration attorney Nadine Brown, and if you have questions or comments when we come back after the break, the number is 516-387-1944. G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Hi, I'm Tim Garrison. Uh, you may know me as Timmy G. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been two decades, but I want you to know I'm back in the Arkansas. And I've got a mix of music that can help you relax and chill out. It's smooth. It's relaxing. It's chill out jazz. The soulful mix of smooth jazz, soul, and smooth R&B. So join me every Wednesday night, 10 p.m. to midnight on KHAM Radio. Are you chilling? 
Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We're here with immigration attorney Nadine Brown here in Central Florida. And if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. So, Nadine, uh, are there resources out there? Um, and how? And I'm sure there are, but I was just wondering what what is the status? Um, have some of the resources depleted, or are there still enough resources out there for people who are trying to go through the proper immigration process but are in need of funds or shelter or something? So a lot of it is what you can afford on your own. There are still agencies um, that provide uh, free services or nominal fee services. Catholic Charities is one of them, um, Church World Services, Jewish Services, Islamic Society. So it's, sometimes it's, it's based on the individual communities that individuals um, you know, belong to, ethnic heritage. Um, church organizations always facilitate uh, to help with sometimes the fees, or they have open clinics, meaning that there's like a um, you know volunteer team of attorneys or um, uh, board accredited um, board of immigration appeals accredited representatives that are willing to you know volunteer their time and, and provide free services. Application fees sometimes uh, can be waived if they apply. Immigration does have a policy where they will waive fees, usually for victims of trafficking or domestic violence, um, uh, widows in certain occasions. If you can demonstrate that your budget um, is below poverty income guidelines based on the Health and Human Services um, listed poverty income guidelines. Um, So they will evaluate whether or not they will waive your fees. That's the Department of Homeland Security, um, USCIS services. So there's, there's some infrastructure in place for people who are really in need but like everything else in America, is pay as you go and what you can afford. Um, you know, so people sometimes will work on the table, cash money, and, and that's how they're able to afford their fees. Sometimes they have sponsors, um, you know, family members that assist in payment of the fees. But um, you can pay by credit card. You can pay with personal check, um, you know, with uh, money order. Um, but the fees need to be paid because, again, it's a, a fee-generating organization, a fee-supported organization. Um, but there are some agencies, non-governmental organizations, community-based organizations that are available. And, you know, worst-case scenario, there's always even a credit program. Um, I know that through the American Immigration Lawyers Associations, they sometimes have uh, news bulletins of where, you know, people can pay their fees on a a credit basis. Um, It should be noted, and this is just an aside note or interesting fact, that people who are in detention facilities and are not released on their own recognizance do have to pay bond um, to get released um, for whatever reasons if if the judge feels that they're going to be a flight risk or the government, you know, makes a strong enough argument that they're going to be a flight risk, um, ESCOM did not come back for their follow-up hearing. Uh, and they do have to pay bond or get ankle monitored, and that is a full bond. It's not like a criminal bond where um, you only pay a percentage. Usually with immigration bond, you have to pay the full amount, whether it's five, ten, or $15,000. In some places, it may be $20,000. So that's a lot of money for people to kind of uh, put together, scrape together. Um, but they right. they do, depending on the communities that they're from. And um, however they can, they will. I 
have a question. I know I've asked this before, but um, I just wanted to kind of get, get get an update or get a little more clarification or insight. Is there enough attention pay, being paid to the northern border? I know we pay a lot of attention to the southern border. Um, that's what we hear about kind of day in and day out. But you rarely hear about anything with regards to the northern border. And are there concerns there? There should always be concerns about, you know, any border that we have or territory. A lot of people come through the U.S. Virgin Islands um, through St. Mm -hmm. Thomas. Um, So, you know, people need to be aware that all of our borders, Alaska, um, you know, Hawaii, there's a, you know, huge uh, Asian population from Hawaii. A lot of them are are native or have, you know, been there for um, quite sometimes generations, um, but mm-hmm. people still come through the Hawaiian Islands, especially if you're in the um, Pacific region, um, and also through the state of Washington, uh, you know, bordering on Canada. So we should definitely be paying attention to all of those borders as well. Um, it's just that the the climate doesn't make it hospitable, not that the southern does either, but that's where most of our attention is because it's all the people coming in from South America that are more visible literally because of their their color um, that makes it more noticeable than the others who may come in and blend well with some of the population. So if you're coming through Hawaii or Alaska and, you know, you may have native ancestry or indigenous ancestry and so people can't distinguish and don't try to make that distinct, distinction. Um, mm-hmm. coming through. It's just like if you're a Chicano um, born and raised in California and people mistake you because people need to understand that they're, they're American citizens that are also swept up in some of these um, raids and what have you. And so, you know, they have to walk with their passport or their documentation to show that they are U.S. citizens. But it happens in the North not wow. as frequently as in the South um, because we have huge Asian populations in, you know, New York, state of New York, as well as um, you know, in in Seattle, Washington, and Tacoma, and those places. So, do we need to be vigilant all around and have security concerns all around? Definitely. Um, why is it more the southern border than the northern border? That's kind of an obvious because we still have the legacy of racism and colorism uh, in the United States. So, um, it is still a thing, and we need to to be, you know, concerned about the north as well as the south. There are people who can who can evade and and drive through some of the border points, um, you know, in the north, um, but do they get, you know, tagged and and detained as frequently? Maybe, maybe not so much, um, you know, because sometimes it's when you're coming into the country, you know, who's patrolling the lines, what the geographic uh, territory looks like, um, desert as opposed to forest, so it just depends. But, yes, to your question, uh, we should be as, as vigilant in the north as we are in the south and not uh, be incongruous or uh, heavy-handed in the south and not in the north. Have you or any of your family or friends been traveling and maybe was, were detained and had to have, like, that passport or or proof or whatever uh, of citizenship? Fortunately, nobody in my circle um, has had to, although I will say with a a few exceptions when it comes to the 
the airport, I had posted um, an article about, you know, inspection when it comes to um, uh, the profiling that does happen on in different areas of or aspects of your daily life. Um, definitely coming through the airport, uh, occasionally individuals who may be suspected of of trafficking in contraband or drugs have been detained, um, sometimes momentarily, sometimes for a little bit longer than, you know, 10 minutes. Um, so that has happened. I, I did recently speak to someone who's actually Puerto Rican and um, says she walks, you know, with her passport and her papers because she's been profiled. Um, mm. So it, it does it happen? Yes. It just depends on where and when. And, and you know, she's in Minnesota. Uh, there's other people in, in different states. So it just depends on where you are, how close you are to a border. In Florida, it's just it, it may happen. Does it happen? Yes. Um, and some in my circles, it has happened too. Most often you will get it if you're, you know, on Greyhound or you're at the airport, and depending on which airport um, and, you know, what's happening in the world at that time. I know at one point in time there was an issue with um, African-American women being detained while traveling to and from places like Jamaica and so forth. And so that's why I was curious. And that has Um, happened, yeah, and I'm, you know, Jamaican, um, Caribbean heritage. So, yes, people coming in and out of the Bahamas frequently in Jamaica definitely um, have been profiled and pulled out of line, and and it's more the darker you are, the the more you're going to be suspected, or your hair texture, or hair type, or hairstyle that particular time that you're traveling. Wow, that's a mess. Uh, so, um, what types of things can if you are, are coming to you for services, a person is coming to you for services. What types of things need to happen to make your job easier for you to help whoever is coming to you for services? Because I know, you know, they don't have every – sometimes, probably a lot of times, everybody doesn't have everything together. Right. So um, for for me or for any immigration attorney, really, or for anybody that you're trying to get through a process, whether it's regular state court, you know, civil court, is to have an understanding of the process. That is the first and foremost thing. It's like a lot of people um, are doing inquiries about whether or not they qualify for X or Y, um, especially with immigration. It is such a comprehensive body and area of law that you need to understand where you fit into the process. That's the first thing. So a lot of what I do is educate um, on you know the who, the what, the where, the why, the how. Um, whether it's asylum or you're applying for a family member, you know, what qualifies as a family member. The issue came up the other day about legal custody versus legal adoption, and people don't necessarily understand the two. And with immigration, if you're, you know, you have legal custody of a child and they're not legally adopted, can you then process them as a relative? And the question is no. Um, You need to have the final adoption papers, whether it's a Hague Convention country, um, or, you know, not that some authority in the location where that child is has been legally adopted. That means that the, the parental rights of the biological parents have terminated. 
So I got asked that question both for the parole program and for regular, can you, you know, sponsor an individual for a green card? So people need to understand where they are in the process and what's happening. So legal custody is not the same as legal adoption, and sometimes people get confused with the terminology or the words, um, and then also the process. So what does that mean? Having the na the necessary paperwork uh, to succeed in the process that you're you're trying to um, embark on. So that means having the birth certificate, and it's not a hospital birth certificate, and that's for any legal procedure, not a hospital record, not a midwife record. It has to be from the Office of Vital Statistics or some civil authority registry that is recognized by the U.S. government. So it can be for the 50 United States, it's going to be, you know, your state vital statistics office. Uh, if it's abroad, it's going to be in that country what civil authority, whether it was like, a, for example, a customary marriage or a religious marriage, did the civil authority recognize it um, so that they can then qualify you as an immediate relative. So it's first understanding the process for sure. You know, what is it that you want or what do you think I can accomplish for you? What essentially are you trying to achieve so that I can know whether or not your expectations are going to be met or how I need to educate you about what you should be expecting? And then secondly, do you have what is required to achieve the goal that you're trying to accomplish? So with, this, with immigration, it's having the proper documentation. Uh, for the parole program for Nicaraguans, Cubans, and Haitians, how do you prove your nationality? If you came with just the clothes on your back, are you then able to get proof of your citizenship for that country? Do you have a valid passport from an embassy um, that is issued or the, the authority that issues passport in your country? If Haiti is a hot mess big politically because they don't have government offices open or the embassies here are non-responsive, what can you prove that you're a Haitian? It's just, you know, somebody just says, okay, I'm a Haitian and I speak Creole. That does not prove that you're a Haitian. You need to have the documentation. So it's a valid passport, uh, definitely, um, or your birth certificate. And for a lot of Haitians, uh, you know, and people from other places, whether it's Venezuela, because the government um, is in such disarray, you may not have those services available for you to then apply for an updated um, birth record that is typewritten or that has clearly legible information that an officer of the Immigration Customs Enforcement or Immigration Office can determine that you are a national and that it is you, or did you change your name or did you get married so you have your marriage certificate because your surname needs to match um, on your you know, certificates as it does in your passport as well. So identity is always a, a, your burden to prove if you're the applicant for whatever benefit you're applying for. So it's making sure that you have proper documentation um, to, to you know, state who you are, and then do you qualify for what you're applying for. For people who have, for example, um, eligibility for TPS, which is Temporary Protective Status, which, you know, the holy grail is can I get a work card? Can I get a work card? Can I get a work card? What do you need to get a work card? First, you need to qualify for TPS. So what does that mean? Do you meet the criteria that, that the government has put in place to say that you are now eligible and you can submit your application? doesn't mean that you will get your application, but, okay, so you have to say that you're a national of X country, Haiti, you know, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, wherever, Colombia, um, Honduras, you know, wherever you're coming from, Kenya or Eritrea, 
So you get to prove who you are, and do you qualify then for the benefits? Can you prove that you were in country on X date when the law went into effect? That means, you know, uh, medical records, uh, school records, um, you know, bank account statements, you know, insurance paperwork, which a lot of people don't have if they're trying to get a benefit. So, you know, you do whatever you can to kind of push push through or get the papers together because the United States is still a very paper-intensive, let's vet and prove that these individuals um, deserve or merit the benefit that they're applying for. So it's making sure that, one, you understand the process, two, you have what is required to at least submit your application for the process. And that goes for state court, too. I mean, if you're applying for a name change or you're applying for a divorce um, or, you know, you want to you know, expunge your case in criminal court, which I don't do, but but you still need to have your paperwork together. So those are the things that I tell people, and and now it must be legible and clear. You, you, a lot of old school things were handwritten, may have been nice penmanship, calligraphy, whatever, but they want typewritten, clearly visible, clearly identifiable information, and that is what is critical and important for any court or legal process. I have something I need to ask you when we come back, uh, something you've touched on, and I don't, I don't know how much you deal with it, so uh, we'll talk about it. We're here with Attorney Nadine Brown, immigration attorney. The number, if you have a question or a comment, 516-387-1944, Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Does it appear the long arm of the law is working against you instead of for you? Whom do you call when the boys in blue are pursuing you? When the wrong person behind bars may end up being you? With over 40 years combined legal expertise, Anderson and Welch bring to bear a smart, sound, sensible defense of those caught in what may be the unrelenting grip of the legal system. Turn to Anderson and Welch first to get ahead of trouble, not fall into it, by calling 561-832-3386. That's 561-832-3386. That's Anderson and Welch Law Firm online at andersonandwelch.com. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, just blessed to have uh, immigration attorney Nadine Brown. She knows her stuff uh, and, you know, gives, helps to give us an update, keep us on top of the immigration issues. And if you have a question, the number is 516-387-1944. Um, you touched on, in passing, um, human trafficking. And you, I, you're probably aware, and, and everybody that doesn't know, this month is uh, National uh, Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and to, actually tomorrow um, is is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Um, and it's, uh, there's a campaign called the Blue Campaign, and it talks about uh, wearing blue tomorrow. So you know, please do that if you can wear your blue um, and to call attention to National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Do you, in your practice, encounter uh, those types of issues, human trafficking, um, on a, on any type of regular basis, or can you tell me about what you know? So in in recent years, no, but um, in earlier years, I, I 
I did a lot more work with domestic violence, trafficking, and people need to understand that trafficking is not just, okay, you have a group of, of women that are sex slaves. Um, I guess that's the, the first impression that would come to mind when you say trafficking. What does that mean? It's essentially, it's modern-day slavery, and it's not just, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the sex trade or, or as a part of, you know, gang violence, but it's also um, when it comes to industry, the workers. I mean, America is notorious for having, um, you know, uh, a, a tremendous workforce. So what does that mean? People want cheap labor, or the the issue now with the news is seeing about the unionization of workers and AFL-CIO or non-compete clauses and what have you. So a lot of trafficking also happens in industry, whether it's agribusiness. Um, so one of the movements have been, I have not seen it like in my practice, but I know that it abounds. And actually in some of my, uh, you know, asylum seekers um, where the workers are abused, um, so people need to be aware of that, that trafficking envelopes or includes, you know, mistreatment of your workers, um, either wage theft, you know, um, you know, oppressive uh, atmospheres where they're feeling they will be physically harmed either by their supervisors or by, you know, somebody on a construction site, Um because they're not doing what they're supposed to do, and and you have a vulnerable population. And so what does the vulnerable mean? It means that, you know, a person who um, would otherwise not have or know that they have the rights that they do. So whether it's a child or it's an immigrant without any paperwork who may be striving towards that, who gets then caught up, whether it's a domestic servant in some instances where the employers withhold their passports um, or, you know, you're at a live-in job and, you know, people are trying to just survive. They're just thinking survival or they come up on a visa, um, a legitimate visa, and they're trying to work and they're doing, you know, for a lot of times it's um, in the healthcare industry or babysitting. Somebody's, you know, doing childcare or doing elder care um, or who's working in a processing plant or a factory. Um, However, you know, they get to the point where they're in now a um, position where somebody has authority over them and has the ability to control their pay or, you know, for eight hours a day, and they know that this individual needs the work. So they may hire them, whether it's a construction job or elder care services or for babysitting, and then not pay them or not feed them or not give them breaks um, or there's no um, you know, sanitary circumstances, or they hire them to work for a resort but have them 15 to an apartment because housing, quote-unquote, was supposed to be a part of the work contract, you know, or they um, have them as migrant workers and they have them in trailers with, you know, barely latrines. Um, so those are those are circumstances under which people need to understand that trafficking also occurs. Um, so when you feel that you are not free to leave, or you feel compelled to be there because you're either waiting for your paycheck or you you know that you have no choice, or they threaten to call ICE um, on you if you don't do X, Y, and Z or work for free, then that is essentially a trafficking individuals um, as well. So people need to understand that that happens often. Um, I don't see it as frequently as I used to when I worked with, you know, Catholic charities or uh, in my earlier years, but I still see it, and I had actually somebody report recently that they, you know, they were um, physically assaulted at work. Mm, wow. So how does – okay. So people that are going through the immigration process, since you mentioned this, 
do they have the same legal rights as American citizens? For example, I'm an American citizen. You know, I go to the police and I report that, you know, I feel like I've been uh, sexually harassed, sexually abused on my job. Does a person that does not have American citizenship status have the same uh, privileges and benefits to, to go to law enforcement? Technically, they do. I'm teaching my son about, you know, natural rights, human rights, and what our Constitution breeds life into. And um, we're supposed to, with, with, you know, when you're in these geographic borders, yes. Um, however, does it always play out that same way? If you're African-American and you're a U.S. citizen and you're walking in or, you know, playing in Fergus, Ferguson um, or you're in New York City or you're in wherever – Um, and you're Mm -hmm. doing things, do you still have the same rights? You're supposed to, but is it always implemented or enforced the same way? No. So um, if you're an illegal in the United States, should you have the same freedom to walk into a precinct and report a crime? Yes, and that's why we have the T and U visas for um, individuals who are victims of crimes and a, um, you know, a, a, a police um, officer or, or body is able to certify you as either a victim of a crime or a witness in a crime, then you can also get, you know, a certain type of visa for, for cooperating um, in that process. Um, but, yes, you do. You also have due process rights, which is why you can't just grab somebody up off the street unless, of course, you, you know, entered as a visa waiver entry um, individual and then you, you waive certain rights um, for that purpose of, being able to come in without a visa just on certain passports. Um, but, yeah, you're supposed to have the same rights as we do, but it also depends on the context. <clears throat> okay. So um, also something you mentioned in terms of uh, the sphere of people coming and taking jobs and stuff like that, which I think is, <clears throat> in a way is kind of laughable now when you have people who have an opportunity to, to go back to work and aren't going so um, I, I don't know uh, who's doing the complaining, but, I mean, it's, it's not like there isn't work out there now. Correct. It's just the type of work and, and what we perceive to be, you know, for us. I mean, a lot of us seemed entitled or, or mm-hmm. are entitled or privileged and we don't recognize it or we have certain expectations about, you know, what we deserve or, or what we merit, Um you know, even without working for it. And for a lot of us, it's okay, you still need to go get a degree or a vocation or a trade or, you know, get a job and just, you know, start uh, building your way and your resume up to to get to where you want to be. And, and some, you know, types of work is not for some people. You know, they said they're not mm-hmm. built for manual labor, so they don't want to work on a construction site or they don't want to work in retail or they don't want to work in food service. Um, so that's not what they're looking for, but that may be what their skills tell them that they need to do. So it's just matching your expectations with your skill level um, and what have you. But there is still that perception that people are coming and taking jobs or they can't get jobs. But it's, you know, when you um, kind of uh, deconstruct that, what does that mean essentially? Is your skill level Mm -hmm. or the types of jobs that you're applying for that you think you're suited for what you think you need to do? And some people think they're above certain things. Nadine, how can you be contacted? So I am still working virtually, but I'm still working and still have a uh, healthy client base. Um, but I can always be reached by email or by phone and um, accessible to the public. Definitely always to educate. 
uh, and inform and empower those people to know that they have choices. And you can contact me by phone, 407-678-2224, and by email. But all my information is available at my firm website, which is Nadine Brown, P is in professional, A is in association.com. Nadine, thank you always. I appreciate you always taking the time out for us, and, and you have a blessed day, and take care of yourself. You're most welcome, and thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you. You too. And thank you all for listening. This has been G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Please remember tomorrow, wear your blue and uh, help generate awareness for National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. This has been G's Power Hour. Never had it so good. Entertainment, be well, be safe, be blessed, and please remember, all real power comes from God. Take care.